parade of people this morning. Adjust your volume. There's a whole rock collection up here. This is pretty fun. Now I have to find room for all my stuff. Make sure you can like. Right. So good morning, everyone. I am finally getting an opportunity to share a little bit about the kingdom of God. And I'm going to pick on Terry a little bit because as she finished up here, she said, and this is a way for us to build the kingdom of God. So I don't want you to forget that. Remember exactly what Terry said, because we're going to expound on that a little bit um, in just a few minutes. So to start with, I want to bring our attention to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's Mark chapter 1. In verse 15, Jesus says to the people, this is right after his temptation in the, in the wilderness, right when he's getting ready to start his ministry. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's nearly the very first thing that Jesus says to people publicly. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so what I'm wanting us to be able to answer is what exactly was Jesus announcing? What does it mean that the kingdom of God has come near? And what was so good about this news? If we really break down that passage, we see that by implication, the kingdom of God has to be absolutely central to the good news, to the whole gospel. And we, we tend to throw that term around a lot, kingdom of God, without necessarily knowing what we even mean by it. So that phrase, kingdom of God, is used 162 times in the New Testament. 162 times in the New Testament alone. And so we're not even talking about Old Testament usage at this point where we're talking about the kingdoms of Israel or the kingdom of Judah. We're talking about the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven used in the New Testament 162 times. And the majority of that is used in the gospels alone by Jesus. Um, when I was in college, my New Testament prof taught us that the kingdom of God was Jesus' central theme in what he taught. Has anybody who's been in seminary had that same experience? Anyone? Nods? Anyone? No? Mike has? Good. <laughs> Thank you. I was hoping someone would give me some feedback there. Yeah, so it's not just my, I'm just trying to verify, it's not just my professors that said that, but, um, and, and so this professor, he reminded us throughout the semester, he told us repeatedly, kingdom of God is absolutely central to everything the gospel is. Now, over time, since it's been a few years now since I've been in college, even with that emphasis, I tend to use the phrase without necessarily knowing what I mean. We tend to use a lot of kingdom language. Terry used it. Like I said, I'm picking on Terry a little bit this morning. We talk about building God's kingdom. We talk about advancing God's kingdom. We talk about doing particular things for the kingdom. And what I know everyone sitting here this morning already said this morning as we were praying the Lord's Prayer, we prayed, thy kingdom come. 
So my question this morning is, do we really know what we mean or what we're praying for? And Mike and I are teaching a three-part series on Kingdom of God here over the next three weeks, starting today. But even further than that, um, Isaac, who was up here just a few minutes ago, and I will be teaching on the Kingdom of God all year in Sunday school. So if you really want to take a deep dive into Kingdom of God, um, 9.30 on Sunday mornings, we're going really deep, and we're going to be covering lots of different issues related to Kingdom of God. So there is a tendency in what we would call today the progressive church movement where we're supposed to be moving away according to them from using the phrase kingdom of god because it um, it promotes conquest it promotes the idea of dictatorship or it can have connotations of nationalism or that christian nationalism that we do not want to be all about but I would argue that instead of throwing out the term, we don't want to throw out the concept, but instead we need to seek to understand what Jesus meant by kingdom of God. Let's not throw good stuff out, especially when it's central to Jesus' message. In fact, I think it's really quite grievous when we do try to throw out things from the Gospels, from the Bible, in response to the relevancy or the tendencies in our cultural to make certain shifts. But we do want to be sensitive to people who feel that way, so please don't hear me say be belligerent about the term kingdom of God or throw it in people's face who struggle with that. Seek to understand, be kind to everyone. But our goal here at First Christian over the next few weeks is to really hone in and understand what does Jesus mean when he uses the term kingdom of God. So we do see in Matthew 6.33 that Jesus is talking. This is, he's talking to people. This is the passage where Jesus is imploring the people not to be anxious about what they're going to wear or what food's going to be on the table the next day. And instead, he says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. And it's like, okay, God, well, I don't necessarily see ease of circumstance. I don't see my problems going away that I'm no longer to be anxious about. But I think what he's lovingly, longingly entreating people to do is seek first the kingdom. And you don't have to worry about the other things. I will take care of you. Worry about the things that are bigger. And I'll take care of you. And that sounds very, very simplistic. We can unpack that more too, come to Sunday school. So my question then, what do we, does Jesus mean when he uses the phrase kingdom of God? One author puts it this way. The kingdom of God has to do with God's reign breaking into history and into our world in a decisive and new way to bring restoration to God's lost creation. I like that definition. It's the idea of God's reign breaking into history where his authority and his rule are on display. But we do see that in Jesus, God's reign comes when Jesus enters the scene and it's applied in this world that is not yet fully under his authority. We don't see the entirety of creation submitting to God. We don't see the entirety of our institutions sitting under the authority of Christ. But 
I would ask us what is under Christ's authority? Or who is under Christ's authority? And that would be us. Those who have repented and believed the good news. And so what does it look like for us to be marked as a people? To be under the authority of Christ. To be marked as citizens of this kingdom, living under God's rule, under God's reign. And so Mike is going to start us out trying to answer that question. So as Rena said, there's a people don't like it when you tell them what to do. I don't like it either. We're a nation of people that said no to a king, although it feels like we have little minor kings. Um, we've traded a chosen family tradition for an elected king or little kings in our lives, and it just keeps going. But in us, I think we have a natural rebellion, especially as Americans, but I think as people, that we don't like people telling us what to do. I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, sometimes my first reaction when someone tells me what to do is, of course not, or make me, or you're not big enough to even try to attempt that. And so I think if we have what Rain has described in the kingdom and the gospel and the kingdom of heaven, it all kind of comes together. Um, but if we don't understand that this king isn't just a king that came to destroy us, to break us down, to break us down, to build, build us back up, but instead came out of a passion for love for us, then we're going to miss it. So when you hear language of kingship and you should obey and you should put yourself in submission under the king, it's... If you're a rebel like me, that makes it sound like I don't want any part of that. But what's really happening is it's out of love. You and I both know there's people in our lives, there's leaders that have been in our lives, that when they just told us what to do, we are going to bristle at that. But when they have shown us how to do it, they've led by example, they've sacrificed themselves for us to understand and to know, we're going to follow those people. The people that would put some skin in the game, that's how we follow. That's who we're going to follow. And so if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to... Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to go through some parables. In this section, Matthew chapter 13, there are eight parables, and I've taught through this before. I'm sure you've heard other people read them, and when you take them individually and you build an entire sermon on them, those are great. It's great you can have eight weeks of sermons on Matthew 13, but it really needs to be understood in context all together in one sitting because you have eight parables together. And six of them mention what the kingdom is like. You get two parables telling you exactly what they mean. I love it when Jesus does that. Because parables are meant to be understood. There's one central key fact in every parable. You're not supposed to break it down and try to pick it apart and do a flow chart. You're supposed to just get one central truth out of a parable. And he gives us eight. And the one central theme is that God the Son came to save us that you and I are worth the sacrifice, that you and I are worth all of his love being poured out. And then when that love pours on us, then we, were, we will willingly submit ourselves to that kind of kingship. So let's look at some of these parables. I'm not going to read them all because it's very long. But we start off with the parable of the sower. And he tells them, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. It talks about rocky ground, talks about um, weeds popping up, talks about falling away. And so you have two people in this parable, the sower and the soil. 
the key is who's the sower? Well, I think if we would, I mean, it's pretty logical. Who's, who's sowing the seeds of faith? Is it you, is it me, or is it God himself? God. The Spirit. God. The it's God. Thank you. <laughs> Always answer Jesus, and you get a gold star. <laughs> the soil is all about the condition of the person who's receiving the seed. If you have a hard heart, it's hard soil, you're not going to receive it. If you are pliable, freshly tilled, ready to receive, then you're going to produce fruit from that seed being sowed. So Jesus starts off in Matthew 13 teaching them about the condition of the hearts of the people you're going to talk to and who is doing the work. The work is being done by God. And it is a requirement to spread that seed everywhere. We, we indiscriminately spread the seed, the good news, the, the truth of the kingdom, and then it's the soil that's going to receive it. It's not you and I's job to force people into faith. It's our job to continually share the truth of who God is, and then the soil is going to receive it. He then explains that, which is, I'm thankful he did, because then it sets us up for the rest of them. We then land in the parable of the weeds, and he talks about the disciples. It gives us a picture that weeds are going to grow up with the good fruit. And so the question is asked, well, do we need to go pull all the weeds? And Jesus tells them no, that there's going to come a time when there's a gathering, and we gather up all the fruit, and we gather up the weeds, and that's when the dividing happens. Again, a picture of constantly sharing the truth of who Jesus is and not expecting a return on investment, which is a great business idea, but a terrible church idea, that you're going to have a, a constant teaching, a constant spreading of the truth, and then at the end, we're going to know who's received it. We're going to know who is going to be the, was amongst the people who believed and didn't. We don't have a spot in the parking lot when you walk down the sidewalk. And we have a special test or a, a blood test. Like, remember that movie Gattaca? You remember that? I'm making myself old. That we have to do a special test as you walk through to see who here really believes in Jesus and who doesn't. Instead, as a church and as a people, we are going to talk about Jesus to everybody, and we don't have to sit around and go, is that one? Is she really? Does he really? That's not our job. Our job is to consistently teach the truth of who Jesus is, and Jesus says that when he comes back, the angels are going to reap the harvest, and there will be a division. The weeds will be burnt up, and then the, the wheat, the fruit, will be with the Father. So it's our job, again, to share the truth. We then get the parable of the mustard seed, mustard seed and the leaven. Two images of something very small that can do really good things and do really bad things. And he tells us, the kingdom of heaven is like, so when you hear that, those words, you got to pay attention. The kingdom of heaven. We've talked about it a little bit. Raina has explained how many times it was mentioned in the New Testament. It's this word we throw around and he tells us, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, and when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So he tells us that the smallest of faith, the thing that you're clinging to, can grow to be such a large faith that other people will find rest in the truth that you share. That it can start as something very small, you're clinging to one piece of hope, one piece of truth. You might not have all the Bible figured out, but the kingdom of heaven, the truth of Jesus, grows to bring others into that kind of rest. 
Then he tells an immediate parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. That not only does this small mustard seed grow for the external to bring others in, it also grows internally. That leaven, I'm not a big baker. I like to eat bread, but I'm not a good baker of bread. And so a little bit of leaven can spread throughout. Some of you, have you ever done like the sourdough starters and had your, do you call, it's not called a mother, is it? That's when you do kombucha stuff, right? That's a, your mother. That's gross. <laughs> I don't understand all that, but you go ahead and keep doing it. But the picture is something in a group of people that un, when they made bread, they would keep a little bit of it behind or on the side and continue to grow, continue to grow. So you have an external picture of faith growing to bring others in, an internal picture of us growing in our faith. That the kingdom of heaven is like a continual growth in love for God. He then talks about the weeds, he explains it, and then he tells us of the hidden treasure. And this is where you have to pay attention. This is why it's important for Matthew 13 to really be seen in context. Because there's a shift. And often these two parables here, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price, I've heard it preached before, maybe you've heard it preached before, that it's about you. Are you willing to sell all that you have to get that, to get Jesus? The parable reads, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And this is often taught, um, my opinion, which means it's right, is that it's taught incorrectly. If you put it in context, the, the man who's willing to sell the field is Jesus. It's not you and me. Often this can be taught that are you willing to give it all? Are you willing to give all your possessions up to get the treasure of Jesus hidden in a field? And I could preach, but it's not right. Because we see that the man, we've just read through several parables and talks about the sower being a man, talked about the man context as a change in mid-thought. It continues on to the rest of the parables. So this is about the love of God and Jesus willing to give all for you. That you are the treasure. You are what he's going after. That the man, the son of man, is willing to give his life for you and for me to get the treasure hidden in a field. The pearl of great price is exactly the same. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The merchant is Jesus. You and I are the pearl of great price. That he loves us, that he wants us, that he's willing to do whatever it takes. The last parable is a parable of the net, talking about fish, getting a large net, collecting a bunch of fish, and then separating the fish. It's the exact same parable as the parable of the weeds, just taught in a different way. What I want you to understand is we talk about kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that this king who wants to reign and rule over our lives isn't just telling us to do things because we mess up or because we got to follow a certain list or a certain set of rules. He wants you to understand that he loves you. He's willing to sell it all for you, that he stepped out of heaven as God the Son to die for you and for me. And that when you're motivated and moved by love, you will submit yourself to the rule of a king. If you're just told what to do, and it's about high taxes, and it's about performing, it's about pleasing, none of that is going to motivate you to live a life that honors God. 
what's going to change you, what's going to change people's lives is love. And these parables lay out that his love for us, his rule over us, is not just as a supreme dictator. It's out of the love of, the, of God the Son stepping out of heaven to take on flesh, to be with us, and then show us a way to live, and then to die for our sins. And when you understand that in the depths of your soul, you'll gladly submit your life to that kind of king. in mind um, that kind of king wants us in his presence he offers himself to us and I'm going to turn us to John um, chapter 16 to start with or to end with I guess we're closer to the end than the beginning at this point but we, we talk about God wanting rule and authority over us and what Mike said is because of his nature, because he loves us and the way he loves us. And so we have to find ways to experience his love, to truly learn to believe his love. You know, we all, if you've grown up in the church, you grow up singing, Jesus loves me. Even people outside of the church grow up with that idea of God loves us. And then we see our experiences and we're like, well, how can God love me if this is happening to me? We're going to be discussing that issue here in three weeks or so, two weeks from now. And, and so I want us to see in John, Jesus has spent time with his disciples. He is hanging out with them for the last time before he actually is arrested and goes to the cross. And he says to his disciples, I'm leaving now. I'm going to be away from you. And they're sad, and they don't know what to make of what he's talking about. And, and they're like, well, what do you mean? Where are you going? And he doesn't give them a complete answer as to where he's going, but what he does do is he says, trust me, it's better for you that I leave. It's better, it's good. And so John 16, 7, I'm going to attempt to turn there. John 16, 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And if we do further study in that passage, we know that the helper is the Holy Spirit. For those of you who were in our Sunday school class last um, spring, last fall, I believe it was, we really dug deep into these passages. And so you guys would know that the helper is the Holy Spirit. And a few passages later, um, Jesus says, this helper, the Holy Spirit, is one who will comfort you. This is the one who will help you to really, really believe that you are loved, that I love you. And, and so I just implore us to understand that this God who seeks to have authority and rule over us as bring, part of bringing his kingdom is a God who says, I have given you every single thing you need to experience me, to experience my love, to experience my comfort, to experience my conviction of sin. I'm not going to leave you in, your, in the pits of sin, in the pits of despair. I am with you because the Holy Spirit is with you. I think 
Jesus, we, we hear the term Emmanuel or the name for Jesus often at Christmas time. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's a perfect description of who Jesus is. And especially if you're the disciples, Jesus was literally right there beside them, with them. And he says, I'm sending you this helper. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, who is God in us. Jesus is with us, beside us. The Holy Spirit is God in us. And Jesus says this helper is how you get to abide in me still, even though I'm not with you or next to you any longer. And so in John 15, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus in John 15 says, abide in me and your joy will be full. He says, my joy is complete when you abide in me. And so that word abiding is about resting, is about being with Jesus. Sometimes I feel a, I guess it's a spirit come over me, and I think it's probably the spirit's conviction of put your Bible down. And I'm like, what? We, we Christians don't put our Bibles down. We, we hold on to our Bibles. We study our Bibles. We cling to the word. And yes, absolutely we do. But sometimes I think the spirit just wants us to be with him, to enjoy his presence, to experience those feelings of being loved and secure in him. I tend to be the type of person who almost can verge toward the tendency of worshiping my Bible because I love reading and I love learning so very much. And we have to realize that the word is our foundation for everything in our relationship with Christ. But sometimes I think Jesus just wants us to go on a walk with him. I use my imagination quite frequently in that idea of abiding with Christ. I'll go to a coffee shop and I'll sit down and I'll have coffee with Jesus. I'll take a walk around the block and have take a walk with Jesus. He wants our companionship. He wants to be with us. He wants us to long to be with him. And I would argue too that this kind of abiding in him and being with him is what fuels the kingdom of God, because we learned from these parables that Mike just showed that the kingdom starts small. He is interested in each and every single person in this world to come to know him. And once we know him, he doesn't be like, okay, done, check. No, Jesus is intimately engaged and involved with us in every day of every minute of our lives. And so take advantage of those opportunities you have, whether that's in small chunks or big chunks, to be with Jesus. Sometimes that's in the word and sometimes it's not. Connect with him because he is the presence of the king, the Lord of the kingdom, who is very, very interested in the little one-person relationship. So we've talked about the, the rule and reign of Christ in the kingdom of heaven. And Raina just shared the presence of Christ in the kingdom of heaven. And so we, we, the third aspect will be the power of Christ is the kingdom of heaven. And so we, we see this picture of him coming after us to rule and reign in our lives. We see a desire for him to be present with us in every circumstance. I don't know, have you been around people like that? That it seems like whatever comes their way, they, I don't mean that they have no emotion, 
It can be a terrible experience. Something is really hard they're walking through. They seem to still have a hope. They seem to still have an ability to, to read everything that's happening. This is a, a tragedy. This is a hard season. But I have hope. I have hope in Christ. I have hope in my future. I have hope in my eternity. I don't want to ever be a person that has that kind of hope but doesn't admit the pain that you're currently walking through. But you also don't want to be a person that's easily swayed by every circumstance to where your foundation of Christ is just shattered because you get some bad news. It can take a bump in the road. It can take a moment. It can needs a, a week to help and process and people to come around you. But it shouldn't shake everything away from you and your faith. And so we're also going to examine the power of Christ. And I wanted to just end with this, an example of the power of Christ in our lives by reading from uh, Colossians and what Paul says, that when we're alive in Christ, this is what it looks like. Because everything that comes our way is trying to shake us from our foundation. You get the bad news, you read the news, you hear something, something's going on in your relationships, and it can shake us, it can drive us away, it can cause us to start questioning everything. And the way that you can stay firm, the way that you can persevere through all of those things is to know that you're alive in Christ. So I'm going to read to you from Colossians. It's chapter 2, verse 6. Paul is talking to this church that is a bit, it's not a rebellious church. They've kind of lost their way a little bit. Um, when you read about the lukewarm church in Revelation, it's talking about Laodicea. Laodicea is a sister church to Coloss, or Colossae, Coloss, we'll say Coloss. And the letter to the church in Colossians is the cure for how not to be lukewarm. And so what he's saying in chapter 2, he's been reading to this, or writing this letter to this church, and he says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits for the world, and not according to Christ. There's so many things pulling at all of us. To trust, to think, to, to think on outside of what Christ would have for us. We have to be careful. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him, who is the head of all in authority head of all rule and authority. In him also you're circumcised with a circumcision made, circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the power working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them all. The power of God in our lives erases sin. The power of God in our lives puts us on the path that he would have us on. The power of Christ in us is the very power of the creator to walk through the tough times, to walk through the pain, to walk through the confusion, to help others. 
He reigns and rules because of his love. He desires you. He actually likes you. He wants to spend time with you. Not because he bought you at a price, so he has to deal with some bad product and he can't return you because it's already been expired. But because he really wants to be with you. And when you understand that, then you can sense and feel and tap into the power of God to make it through anything. There is nothing that you can't walk through. There's nothing that you can't sustain. There's nothing that you can't forgive. There's nothing that you can be forgiven from because his power is in us. His love for us knows no bounds. And so my hope is that you know that. My hope is that you understand God's love for you. And this next coming weeks and then through a year in the Sunday school class, the kingdom of heaven will be discussed in great detail. But today the question is, do you know Jesus as your king? Do you know him as your friend? Do you long to spend time with him? For me, that usually requires getting out of town, going someplace where my phone doesn't work. A lot of times it involves a fly rod. But sometimes it's sitting in the parking lot, waiting for my kids to come out of practice, or waiting for something to happen. I have a small window of time to just reflect on God's love for me. Do you know that kind of love? That he made this world perfect. He was broken by sin. He knows that you can't fix it. He knows you can't fix yourself. So God the Son stepped out of heaven, and Jesus went to that cross for our sin. And in that love, he died for you and for me. And he asks us to live and abide in him, free of sin, free of guilt, free of shame, and living lives that would make much of him, glorifying him, and helping others to come to that kind of freedom. Do you know that king? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we've had together in your word. I know the wind and being outside um, can sometimes be a little distracting. But I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to reflect and to think on the kingdom of heaven today and tomorrow and for the next coming weeks. But more importantly, Lord, I want us to reflect on our relationship with you. That you as our king, a king filled with love for your rebellious creations. That we would understand that you loved us before we would ever claim a love for you. Help us to see that our sin can be washed away in an instant if we put our faith and trust in you. That the power of your spirit living in us will help us to fight to fight through the temptation that's always raging around us. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to seek you more than anything else. And as we grow in our love for you, we will help others to understand that love too. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one last song. His mercy is more.